You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 036, where I continue my conversation with Chris Cruden, founder and CEO of Inch Capital Management. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. I mean, you've looked at obviously many different... Um indicators over time i'm sure and uh, i'm just curious in in general i mean again if we were going to going to help sort of the the listeners and and and, and maybe the people who are who are, who are aspiring to to become uh, you know a, a a manager of funds uh, at some point in their career are there any indicators that you feel are more robust than others um the only input we take for our system is price mm. so we really don't look at indicators per se I, uh, other than the um the ones i previously mentioned volatility sure. and and whatever measure you're using for momentum or breakout or that sort of thing uh indicators i wouldn't even describe anything we do as being an indicator per se it either is or it isn't right and when you get your, your signal, do you, do you go all in, in in one go or do you scale in or scale out? No. Um, first of all, if it's an existing account, an account that's already up and running, in other words, fully invested at the prescribed uh, leverage, mm-hmm. we will we would describe them in terms of um, units of risk. So our system can be flat. In other words, it can have no position. Right. Currently, we have four flat positions Um, it can be long one risk unit long two risk units or short one risk unit or short two risk units yeah and that's it and in terms of the i guess that's a little bit into sort of the 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 risk management side can you maybe um, visualize a little bit about how much or maybe i should even say how little risk you actually take when you get these to sort of a risk unit how much risk does that actually represent not very much i think the maximum is something like 0.3 of one percent of the available capital per trade yeah so we 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 don't sort of um think this trade is an absolute winner let's really (laughs) load up on it that's just not what we do and the reason for that is as previously given we simply don't know yeah uh, so you can you can make us cry and you can, might even make us bleed, but you're not going to kill us. <laughs> sure. What about stop losses? Um, what's your view on that? Uh, we don't have stop losses in the market. and There's a historical reason for that. Mm-hmm. We do, of course, have stop losses. And it is spot, so it, 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 there's never been an issue. They're not particularly tight because we only trade once a day and we don't trade every day. So and it, we, we're not looking for that one or two pips that some sorts of systems are apparently seeking. So there is some sort of wiggle room Mm. uh, for us. Our stops are based on time and volatility. So that's what takes us out there. We know what they are. But in the olden days, when you used to call Sid on the desk in London, um, (laughs) Sid would want to know where your stop is. And and that's because in the olden days, his job was to know whether you were a buyer or seller and if possible to trip your stops. Mm. Um, So as a consequence and as a part of uh, building a system, we we, we don't put stops in because then you've got people who, who see them and we take the view that there's no benefit in leaving any kind of footprint. Sure in the market and that would in that would include telling somebody where your stops are sure when you say you you use time in your stops uh do you mean that you have pure time stops or is it just the fact that time is a component in the way you calculate the stops it's a component it's not a it's not a a, a, a calendar time or a, an hourly time or a daily time anything like sure, that sure now I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, investors and, and, and people looking at, at this industry, I think they focus a lot on uh, the buy and the sell as being really the crux of the matter and this is how we make our money and so on and so forth. Um, but I think a lot of practitioners would say that 
probably uh, a very important factor in what we do is the position sizing itself, um, uh, which is obviously part of the risk management. What's your view? Is position sizing part of the secret sauce to your success? I well, we, we look at the trades in a, in, a, in, a, in a slightly different different way. I mean, if you're talking about working the order, is is that what you're? No, I'm 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 talking about the 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 the, the position sizing, meaning that as you rightly say, you you incorporate volatility, you incorporate certain other things, and that means at certain times, I would imagine, you can take on a large nominal position with a tight stop or you can have a smaller nominal position with a bit looser stop and that position sizing elastic so to speak actually becomes very important in the generation of returns over time meaning I guess in the old days you would probably maybe you remember this as well that some managers would simply just buy 10 contracts uh, every single time with no respect to what the environment was and i think probably some of these managers got you know got killed along the way but nowadays it's it's a little bit more sophisticated than that and i don't know whether in your model that that's a big component of 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 your return and your risk management uh or 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 maybe it is in your case more the point of of entry and exit well for us the position size is a function of the account size and sure. the, the, the the leverage and because we trade spot we uh, I can see in some markets equities for example you would have a, a definite limit on how much you could buy or sell at any one time mm. in the market we trade that's that's really not a not a factor for us therefore it's not a, a, a huge part or indeed any part of the um, of the algorithm sure sure and the trade implementation itself is that um, you run your systems once a day or, or is it intraday or how, how does it actually work well actually we, we we trade once a day and that's at london 1 p.m which is the deepest most liquid time uh for 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 fx mm. uh we we could run it in real time or we could run it two or three times a day but we just don't we haven't found through testing that it makes any enormous difference one way or the other um, a, a good day for us, for example, is when we don't make any trades. Yeah, because um, that means that um, what we've got on is working. Sure, sure. I want to shift gear on you a little bit and talk about uh, risk management. How do you define risk? How do I define risk? Um, or what kind of risk measures do you look at? What's important for you when you when you look at risk? I mean, some people look at you know value at risk. Some people look at you know how much can I lose if everything goes wrong right this minute uh, and my stops are triggered. I mean, how do you? What what's the important number in 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 your view? Uh, we we. <laughs> We use a number which is sort of index risk, which is a calculation of what would we make or lose if we hit all of our stops simultaneously. Right. Now, it's entirely it, – it's not real because you can't hit all of your stops simultaneously. Um, it's, not, it's not possible in a system like ours. But let's just say sure. that if you hit all of your stops simultaneously, how much would you make or lose? That's a number that we do look at. Mm. As I say, our problem with our kind of system is not a catastrophic loss. Uh, that's simply something that really isn't going to happen to us. What is likely to happen to us is that we get an accumulation of small losses over an extended period of time mm. uh, because we're risking so little on each trade, even at you know three times gearing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's hard for us to get get hurt terribly but nevertheless we, we still like to know on a daily basis or on a real-time basis what our our total risk to stop is if mm. we would hit it notwithstanding the fact that it's actually not possible mm. and we, we know that in not only in terms of percentage uh, of the portfolio we know it in terms of percentage of the specific trade uh, and also in the, uh, the the number of pips for example, I can tell you our Aussie sh uh, yen position with short two risk units at the moment, we're up a total of 167.6 pips, um, which basically works out to about 1.749% of what we, and I'll use the word bet, on right. that particular cross. And our risk to stop is a positive 67.45. So if the price came against us about 67 pips, yeah. 
we would still have made 1% on the money that we'd risked on that particular cross, just over 1%. Sure. That's, that's the way we look at it. Sure. Uh, but uh, having said that, uh, you were the question might arise, well, what if you saw a truly horrific number? Mm. What would you do? <laughs> yeah, um, sure. <laughs> okay. Thank, thanks for asking you You've that got question. a fire alarm, so <laughs> <laughs> what do you do if you not just smell smoke, you see flames? Sure. Um, <clears throat> The answer to that is, first of all, it's never happened. It would have to be a, 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 an error within the program uh, because we, it's not possible for us to accumulate that kind of portfolio risk. If I was going to ask you on a daily basis what range you would expect the loss to stop to be sort of on average long term, What what kind of number would you expect to see when you look at your report every day and say, yeah, okay, we can lose five percent, or we can lose seven percent, or we can lose fifteen percent? I don't know. What 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 is these acceptable sort of risk levels that you look well, at? Well, I, I can tell you this: um, between a gain of, and this is at three times gearing, right? Three times gearing. Okay. Between uh, a gain of one point two five percent and a loss. Of 1.25 percent, okay. 98 percent of our days, portfolio days, mm. fall within that band. Okay. And at the extremities, it is very much positive, and uh, they far outweigh the extremity on the loss side. So, if you contrast that, for example, with the S&P 500, using the same 1.25 gain, 1.25 loss. The S&P 500 is about 74 percent mm. of its days yeah. fall within that band. Therefore, you would say that it is far more volatile than our program, and indeed, it is. Of course, sure. Now, again, a question out of ignorance, I guess, and that's something to do with correlation. I mean, many diversified managers, uh, you know, look at correlation as an important component in terms of the diversification of the portfolio. But when you operate within one asset class, if we call it that, how does correlation, if at all, play in your design of your strategy? Or risk management, uh, for that matter. Yeah, in terms of correlation with our uh, with with other asset classes. Oh no! In terms of the internal correlation, because obviously, again, we're dealing we're still dealing with seven different currencies, yeah. but we're just mixing them up here. But I wonder whether the correlation between these seven different currencies play any part, really, in 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 uh, your risk management or in your research in your design. They do indeed. In fact, they play a big part. Okay. Um, because uh, we cast your mind back into the, uh, the the world that existed before the euro. Right. Uh, we used to trade at Tamiso so 28 different uh, crosses, uh, if if you will. Um, but we only traded Deutschmark for Europe. Mm. We traded pound, obviously, but we didn't trade guilder. We didn't trade lira. We didn't trade anything. And the reason for that is, at the very time that you needed and wanted needed diversification. What you actually had was one position effectively highly correlated with the Deutsche market, seven times as large as you wanted it to be. Yeah. So, uh, as a proxy for Europe, we only traded um, the Deutsche mark. Right. Uh, correlation is very important to us because that is that that sort of uh, correlation is something that can change very quickly. And uh, with a little bit of experience, you see that it's something that generally comes along at the the, the least helpful time. So um, the, the, you, if you find that you had, you thought you had seven positions, turns out you got one position seven times as large, yeah. uh, and that's not good. So correlation, even in the, uh, the 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 price stream, the sixteen price streams that we, we we trade, is an important consideration. And how do you deal with that other than having a stop uh, for each of the? I mean, is there any other way you can deal with that uh, unknown? We do it with the risk equivalency. Okay. Risk equivalency, uh, it, because we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. I, I think Larry Hyatt was in in Market Wizards one uh, years and years ago, and he he was asked, um, or he said to Jack Schwager, he said, "I've never made a bad trade." Mm. And of course, everybody sort of leapt upon that and said, "What an arrogant son of a gun he was," which Larry wasn't or isn't a, a, an arrogant son of a gun, but what he was saying is, all trades are the same. 
Yeah. No trade is good, no trade is bad. Some sure. might go on to be winners, some might be losers, but they're all basically the same at the time of instigation. So too with us. So we try and equalize everything. because We trade the way we trade because of what we don't know, yeah. not because of what we suspect we know. Yeah, absolutely. I want to shift to another uh, topic, which is uh, drawdowns. And, um, you know, uh, most managers... Uh, especially in, in, in sort of the CTA space, they they actually spend most of their time in a drawdown of some sort. And, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that that's necessarily the case in, uh, you know, for you, but it is a big part of, of, of the story. And I think it probably also is a big part of what people pay for is for the manager to uh, be that filter and, 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 and deal with the uh, emotional roller coaster that it is to be in a drawdown. Um I'd love for you to share some of your experience in terms of how you deal with uh, drawdowns. I know you you have a lot of emphasis on being able to show up and therefore clearly trying to be in deep drawdowns, I guess, is is, is part of that. Um, but how do you deal with that in, in, in general and, and the periods when you go through uh, your own drawdowns? You mean as an individual, as person? Yeah, and, and and in a sense, yes, because obviously that's what's reflected also in in, in sort of your your strategy. As a um, a real life human being with yeah. admittedly low levels of empathy, um, I would say that it's hard. Mm. But when you go into work every single day and there's remorseless losses, mm. you lost a. a You know, 10 basis points today, you're up five tomorrow, you lost 15 the next day, and on and on and on it goes. Yeah. You would have to be inhuman or subhuman not to have it an, an effect. Sure. But this this is this is the the, the testing period that uh, markets don't just test systems, markets test people. Mm. And you know, people make the mistake that markets are here to, for our entertainment or our enrichment they're not they, they they markets exist to teach humility and they're really really good at that sure. <laughs> really good at that yeah and but this is where you've got to just have the confidence to to show up and keep spirits up and and soldier on that's mm. that's what you do what, what what else are you going to do Do you have any personal rituals, if I could use that word, that you do to take your mind off that? Uh, I mean, some people uh, we know, uh, uh, people for you know um, that that I've been speaking to, they use uh, meditation, they use other certain things to just help them get clarity and and get some of the emotions. I know we use computers to take the emotions out, but we can't take them out completely. But do, is there anything that you do to help yourself? Uh, not not myself. Uh, what I like to think that I do is for our younger people who have not seen this before. Right. I like to think that I am able to show some calmness and uh, an in, an injection of a good humor. I think a, <laughs> a sense of humor is sort of important in this business and is often lost. But. Um, That that's what I try and do, and I, if I focus on that, then it automatically takes care of whatever concerns I might have as simultaneously. Mm. What do you learn from the drawdown periods? Because I think I think it's it's common in most industries that you know the difficult times are often the times where we learn the most. Um, what has been your experience? Not necessarily just from the time with with Cantillo, but maybe also historically, what, what have you learned from the, from the difficult times and the drawdowns? What I learned, well, let me ask this question by this way. I learned almost everything I need to know about this business and trading mm. uh, in the army. Okay. I, I learned the importance of discipline. Right. I learned not to panic. Mm -hmm. And I learned, uh, a more than healthy disregard for hierarchies. Mm. So when a drawdown happens, as I said earlier, it's there to teach us humility, mm. which we can all from time to time benefit from. Mm. Um, but it's like running a, a marathon. It might hurt for a couple of hours, mm. but it does end. Mm. I don't know when it will end, But I, it will end. Mm. But and uh, I have complete and total confidence in that. There is no, not a, a sliver of doubt in my mind that our system 
earns returns, positive returns over time. That confidence, Chris, is often a confidence that investors don't share because they very often pull out of a manager right or very close to the bottom of their drawdown. How do we, as managers, how do we transfer some of that confidence? What are the things that we need to become better at in order to give investors that confidence, do you think? Um, I think, and what we try to do here, is we show that we have not lost our our discipline or our shape. Mm-hmm. We are not panicked by what is going on. Mm. Um, we are aware of what's going on, but we have made a commitment and a representation to take certain action every day in the same way. Mm. Uh, it, 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 and that's what we do. Mm. Now, investors notoriously buy at the high and sell at the low. Yeah. That's an issue for them. Uh, that's them losing discipline. That's them losing panic. That's them having a mandate that requires them to take action or for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, but from our point of view, we will absolutely um, keep the faith. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that you'll find people who may four years ago have described them as, as systematic trend followers now currently be describing themselves as volatility traders in currencies. Why? Well, because clearly <laughs> the world perceives that systematic trend following currencies isn't working, but sure. volatility guys are getting allocations. So I might as well call myself a volatility guy. And they may indeed even have made changes to their system, their approach, their program, whatever, at precisely the wrong time. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do. Um, in in the first flush of youth, uh, many, many, many years ago, we would say, <clears throat> or I would have said, everybody should have all of their money in the currency markets because look how well we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I have aged and and, and, and and matured somewhat, I would say that's probably not the case. There is a time to be more exposed to certain assets than at other times. As long as the asset is um, liquid and transparent, then uh, you should have some exposure to it, I, I'm, I'm sure. And in, in the, as we said earlier, that in terms of liquidity and transparency, there's very little that beats the, um, the, the currency markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I'm not responsible. I can't help what actions other people take. I can, I'm only responsible for what actions I take. And we follow the system. Yeah. Now that confidence and in a sense, if I asked you if you ever doubted your system, you certainly, I'm sure, would say no in, in, in terms of recent times. But I remember from my conversation with Jerry Parker that Richard Dennis taught them to learn to love their system. And essentially, that's what I think you're saying, that you love your system, you love all of the characteristics of it, um, you know, the, the ups and the downs and so on and so forth. But I'm curious, at you know, at what part in your career, how long did it take for you to realize or to come to that conclusion that you can have 100% confidence in this kind of approach? What triggered that where you today can say, I have no doubt that we're going to be making money going forward. Because that's not something you get from day one when you start in this business that I'm almost pretty sure of. Yeah, I, th- I think our, our system as it, as it exists is, and I mentioned earlier how, um, how simple the system really is. It's, right. uh, <clears throat> in a way, it's an encoding of old traders' cliches in, in, in many ways. Right. And these cliches from the day that I entered this business have been seen time and time again to be proved very generally very true. Mm. Not always, but very generally very true. And so even when we started the new system, or indeed the uh, uh, Kintar system at mm. Tomiso, uh, we knew that the basis upon which it was built was true. For example, I mentioned earlier um, to you the length of um, uh, winning holding periods versus losing holding periods. Yes. Losing holding periods, six days, winning, I, I think, 16, 18 days, whatever it is. Sure. That 
what is that? Well, that is cut losses, run profits. Yeah. That's what it is. Now, we, we all know <laughs> that that's what works. Um, so we look at a vast amount of statistical data on the system. Mm-hmm. For example, our system, some people might find this horrific, some people might not, but our system basically makes of all of its trades, about 60% or so of them are losing trades. Yeah. About 40%, well done, are winning trades. Sure. But when we win, we win about $2.12, $2.20, depending on how well we're doing, $2.22 more than the dollar we lose mm. 60% of the time. Mm. That is our statistical edge. Mm. It doesn't have one on every single trade, but over the fullness of time, that's what happens. It's always happened. Mm-hmm. Now, if you and I were to sit down and say, well, let's de- design the world's greatest trading program, something with, say, a win-loss ratio, not of 60-40, losers over winners, but how about 50-50? Mm-hmm. If we could do that, 50-50, with a three-to-one payout, we would have all the money in the world. Sure. I don't mean a lot of money. I sure. mean all the money in the world. Sure. Sadly, we haven't been able to do that. <laughs> what we have done is 60-40 with a $2.12 mm. over a dollar. Yeah. And that's statistically, from an investment point of view, a sufficiently high enough edge to make our system one of the best performing currency systems in the world. Sure. That's all. It's not because not we get anything particularly right. It's just the, the way the numbers fall. And, of course, what you describe there is, of course, the essence of trend following and we can go back and we can demonstrate track records from you know Bill Dunn, Campbell, Chesapeake, whoever they are and they're still around and they've been doing this for 30 some of them even 40 years and and uh, as far as I'm aware a lot of these people right now as we speak in coming up to October of 2014 they're making all-time highs. Yeah. Yet the Death of trend following has been written so many times and, and, and in fact, in recent times. So I want to take the opportunity when I speak to someone like yourself who've been around for a long time. And, and I probably ask this question for, from many of, of, of my guests because I want to try and, you know, help exp- explain or explore why is it, do you think, that investors find it so difficult to accept this proof, these facts, these are not story, these are not marketing hypes, these are proven statistics, proven numbers that are far beyond in terms of robustness and certainly longevity when you compare it with almost any other investment strategy. Why do you think it is so difficult for them to believe in them because i think that's what they don't do since they're all sitting on the sideline cutting cta exposures or certainly not uh, putting money into that area i think we've kind of skirted around it before but never mm. actually said it so it's a right. well-asked question the, the fact of the matter is they themselves lack the primary characteristic that makes trend followers successful and right. that is discipline They lack discipline. They are unable to, for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. um, hold or keep the faith uh, that they bail at exactly the the wrong time. So, and that's not going to change for these people. Uh, There's nothing you or I could say that is going to um, prevent them from doing that. And there's all sorts of reasons. I mean, there's job prevention or job Mm, protection. There's all sorts of reasons I have to do this. Um, So... You know, that's the way it is. I think it's unfortunate, but mm. um, for them, for me, I don't care if they do or they don't. Sure. That's, that's their choice. But uh, it, it is unfortunate. Mm. Uh, and they'll all come flooding back in. And what you find is, of course, people will see a sudden flow of money towards, in this case, trend followers. Mm. They'll describe themselves as trend followers. They may or may not be. There'll be one or two disasters or blow-ups, and then the bruised, battered, and bleeding will, will stagger off and say, oh, I'll never go near those trend followers again. <laughs> And and, <laughs> and sure. the game goes on. Sure, sure. No. Interesting. Appreciate that. Now, I had one more question just about um, drawdowns and risk management. And, you know, 
we all try to eliminate as much risk as we can or control it to certain uh, acceptable levels uh, in any in any event um, but of course as we know not all risks can be modeled and can be um, programmed so is there anything that keeps you awake at night some kind of risk that you know is out there but you just just nothing you can do about it that you might worry about from time to time maybe not every night <laughs> um one of the fortunate things about currencies is that um um well we we, we have the black swan and uh, mm. which is an event that can happen at any time and, mm. and and who knows what there is of course the 50 50 chance that we could be on the right side of that for whatever mm. such is the the benefit of the bi bi-directional markets of currencies uh, and also due to the liquidity that we can soon get on the right side of it so mm. that sort of black swan uh, doesn't worry me at all i i, I really can't in, in envisage one uh, having been through all sorts of things uh, the, mm. the the asian crisis and the you know when malaysia closed the sort of payout window at the casino on the ringgit and all of this sort of stuff uh, no sort of been there done that got that t-shirt that's fine mm. um the grace the, the sort of the, the gray swan um that is an event that everybody knows is going to happen but they have to keep going until it does happen and then they said well for the stock market for example right you would say the stock market decline of 10 20 30 40 50 which is done twice already this this century sure um will that happen again i don't know but if it does people will say aha i knew that was going to happen so we would describe that as a as a grace one mm. for us again due to the particular asset class we we trade and, in, and specifically to versus stocks as as, as, as said yeah. that would actually be a happy day for us but sure. um Uh, so, do I sleep well at night? Uh, the answer is yes. Sure. Now, research uh, on a more positive note, I guess. Um, research is something which is um, kind of interesting because um, many investors want a manager to continue to innovate and, and do research, yet most people don't want you to change. So, it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a contradictory uh, objectives there. But how do you How do you view research uh, and, and how do you go about doing your own research? Um, we have two kinds of research that we do. Uh, the first is sort of general research, which are, th are things that interest us, which are areas that we sort of poke our nose into to see if this is a good thing or a bad thing, an observation, if you will, mm. on on equities or fixed income or the SNB holdings of euro, whatever, whatever it is, that sort of thing. That is something that interests us and, and it might or might not have a a bearing subsequently on the markets that will affect currency prices. So that's one. The other uh, area, of course, is specific um, research pertaining to the system itself. Yeah. So although I say we don't change the system and, and we, we, we haven't, uh, we, we have added other uh, price streams. So yeah. we started off with 10. We now have 16. We're continually looking at others. We look and... and toy with but never include in the portfolio emerging currencies and other ways of trading these sorts of things uh, and we we research that sort of thing and we keep very 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 uh, close statistical uh, measures of what the system is actually doing um, it we sort of see it as a living breathing organism um, because in a way it is it's a matrix that sort of changes every single day or with every single tick so um our research to a, to a large extent our daily research is focused on on that it's like running a nuclear plant for example you, you you've got to keep a you've got to keep a a, a, a a close eye on it and 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 we do Uh, so there's two different kinds of research that we involve ourselves in. Sure. I mean, you say you look, in a, you look at these emerging market currencies, but yet you don't trade them. But do I sense something of an open door saying we may one day include them or we're not going to include them, we just look at them? <sighs> well, we look at them to, and to scratch our heads and say, well, why does anybody trade them? <laughs> um, we, As I mentioned, the main input for our system is price. Right. And the reason for price is we can measure price. Yeah. Price is the price. You like it or you don't like it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the price. Um, if you can't measure it, 
you can't manage it. That mm. would be a, a basic uh, view of our of our business, I mm. suppose, not just the the, 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 the trading system. Um, with emerging so-called emerging currencies, you have other kinds of risks. Sure, political risk being one of them, and various other things. We can't we can't measure those. Mm. Now, I'm not saying they can't be measured. Mm. I'm I'm just saying that we can't yep. measure them. Yep. So we're not going to do anything we can't measure. Sure, maybe other people can. You know, and and maybe emerging markets all shoot up, and you make a ton of money because you're more geared than the guy next to you. Mm. Um, but that the fact that they've shot up has really nothing to do with you. You didn't make them shoot up. Mm. You were just along for the ride. And when they shoot back down again, what are you going to do then? And that's the sort of the history of of investment management in many ways. People who were um, in the right place at the right time, <clears throat> emerging markets. And emerging currencies, I feel pretty much the same way. I mean, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable knowing that you know, if, if you smell sort of fire in the, in, in the theatre, you, you, you want to be sitting next to an exit. And sure. um, I don't know where the exits are in those things. And I, what I do know is the exits are pretty narrow uh, as opposed to the, uh, the, the G7 currencies. And so I don't want to, I don't want to be sitting in that theatre. Sure. Fair enough. A question I often guess get from from the listeners actually and something that they have a, a a deep interest in and that's very simple actually when you do research and when you look at your models what might trigger some kind of a yellow or red flag in 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 suggesting that maybe this model is not working as it should and it requires you know a tweak or maybe it requires more than a tweak What what are you looking for? Um, That's an interesting question. In order to, to sort of gain your badge of inclusion in the portfolio, mm. uh, the currency stream itself has to pass a number of or a battery of tests in terms right. of its liquidity and this, that, and the other. Now, once it's in, yeah, and um, we don't put them in straight away. Obviously, they they are sort of paper traded sure. uh, in parallel for a, a, an excruciating long period of time, and then they're tested with house money and da da da, because. Real money trading is very different to paper trading, and it's really different to, to client trading. So, um, it takes a long time for us to put something in, and very often, um, by the time we get around to doing it, we've seen that this is, in, you know, in fact, is not what we want to do. So we have a lot of false starts, a lot of false starts, mm. more than you can possibly imagine false starts. But uh, we're just not 100% confident, therefore we we don't. Um, to me, so I always used to describe the portfolio of. Um, Uh, of currencies is like having a sports team and they've all got their Super Bowl rings on and they've all won the World Series and they've all you know got their pictures with the FA Cup and whatever it is uh, and that's great but you think well you know that guy is not playing terribly well maybe I should drop him and bring in this other new player and then just as you're thinking that that is in fact what you're going to do that player the existing player goes on and scores seven goals or hits nine home runs or whatever it is yeah. it's The same in in our portfolio of sports player currencies. A, a good example of this is the Australian dollar. I have no idea how many times we've come close to firing the Australian dollar. <laughs> yeah. And then, all of a sudden, he's your superstar. Yeah. And as I mentioned at the outset, we do what we do the way we do it because of what we don't know, not what we like to think we know mm. or what we suspect we might know so uh, it is what it is right right i want to um i want to jump to uh the next topic which is a little bit about the business side of 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 your firm um and i just want to i mean i think both you and i know that many people if not most people in our business do very similar things but some As you've alluded to before, some are better at dressing it up and attract investors. But how do you try to stand out from the crowd, so to speak, um, in order to attract your investors? From the, about 2000 to 2006, um, we sort of dropped out completely. We, we didn't make any effort at all. Right. Um, from about 2007, 2008, uh, we noticed that we were, you know, But, but I have no other way to say it. So, so, uh, substantially better than some of our peers, mm. and so we've made a number of forays into into marketing, all of which have been disaster. We've we've had 
uh, on occasions, one or two people working directly for us. We've had third-party marketeers. We've done all sorts of things. But the, the, the problem with it is, is entirely me. The reason we failed at that aspect is because of me. Um, because I lack confidence in somebody else making representations about us. Right in order to get a paycheck. That's basically what it comes down to. Because mm. I'm the person who has to live with that representation, not them. <clears throat> so that marketing has always been a disaster. It's one of the things we've done really, really badly. Mm -hmm. Now, what? how do we distinguish ourselves otherwise? Well, we, we, we try to produce the best numbers we can, right. and we tend to outlive our competitors. So maybe it's a naive and... A, a, belief i probably is a naive belief but over time people have in fact noticed that mm. um we don't have you know big golf tournaments and we don't do you know fly people around for parties and we don't host conferences and all that sort of stuff um because as i mentioned at the very outset doing things the way we do things we we don't in in fact think of ourselves as being particularly intrinsically interesting people because what they really want to know, what they really want you to tell them, is tomorrow's prices. Mm. And we don't know tomorrow's prices. Sure. Sure. And what about the flip side of that? Meaning, okay, maybe you haven't done much in terms of attracting new uh, investors proactively. Maybe they have found you. But through a difficult period, generally, in the industry, even client retention has become a difficult thing for many managers. We've seen billion-dollar managers be cut to yep. fifty-million-dollar managers, without being specific. But what's been your experience in that? Um, we, we've had a, a particularly loyal client base, some of which have uh, sort of predate Inch, and so they know over the fullness of time. And they have a realistic expectation of, of of what can and cannot be done in this business, mm. in, in in our asset class. And so we haven't had a lot of difficulty in that. We don't have any retail clients, for mm. example. Mm. Um, and the clients we do have tend to be professional bank slash real foreign exchange practitioners themselves. So that's been a big advantage to us. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have to explain to them why we trade currencies in the, in, in, at, at the outset. Um, and so their, their level of understanding has been very, very high because they know us very well. Mm. And so we've probably, I don't know how other people have done, but we've probably done better than most in terms of, of, of retention. Mm. Now, um, you've also chosen to be, if I can put Lugano in that, um, in that space, um, you know, being a little bit outside the, uh, uh, in terms of location, a little bit outside the, the big busy parts of uh, the financial centers. I know you have a representation office in, in London, but certainly from where the main part of the business is operated from, uh, Lugano. Why Lugano, and what does it give you um, that makes you choose to, to be there? Um, the, the, when my wife and I first decided we were be moving to Switzerland, um, the obvious place to go was Geneva. But um, I don't particularly like Geneva as a city. I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't like Zurich, and we happen to be sitting in Lugano at, uh, in uh, Piazza de Reforma here, mm. and um, my wife said to me, well, this is a lovely place. Why don't we just stay here? So we did. <laughs> uh, but in those days, it wasn't, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't the intention to build the business again. Right. right. So what drew us to Lugano was was quality of life. And we have all of the lovely weather. We have the, the, the passion of the Italians. But guess what? The place is run by the Swiss. This is brilliant. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, And so we're very happy here. But it was, well, what, and the reality is, we could be anywhere. We could be on 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 Park Avenue, Park Lane, or in Lugano. It doesn't make any difference to, as to how we would run the business. Mm. It's just that the quality of life here is, in in, in my view, um, uh, very pleasant indeed. Mm. Absolutely, it's lovely. Um, I've got a couple more questions that I want to be 
talk to you about before I go to the last uh, section. And let's try this one because um, I think it's interesting to also find out what you believe are the important questions. Um, and therefore, I wanted to ask you, if you could ask a question of the next guest on Top Traders Unplugged. Um, so I have two questions here. What would you ask them? And if I could add the caveat, for example, and say, what if that next guest was David Harding? What would you ask him specifically? <laughs> Well, if the, if, if the guest was David Harding, I would ask him for some advice. <laughs> uh, David is, is, is I think, a, a specifically um, a phenomenal individual. Of all the people I've known in this business, he is the one person who has, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with his career, he has sort of made lightning strike more than once. And I mentioned earlier, some people just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Mm. Um, while it's true you're better off being an idiot in the right place than a genius in the wrong place, I know that, but very few people can make lightning strike twice mm. or more. Mm. He has. Yeah. So, and he's pretty much unique. He's um, a, a genius is a word that's often sort of thrown around willy-nilly in this business, but uh, he would, I think, get a tick in the box for, from from most people for that, as opposed to somebody who's just merely brilliant and passing through. Mm. Uh, that's that that description does not fit to David. So, um, if 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 I was to ask David Harding any question, I would say, David, do you have any good advice for me? Um, so that 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 would be David. It, other other people, I'm not entirely sure because without knowing specifically who they are, mm. I wouldn't know. Which is why the David Harding thing has caught sure. me on the hop. But it's yeah. a question. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't know. What um, I, t I tell you one thing that was t told to me some time ago, and this is the sort of thing you, you, you this is the talking heads on CNBC. Mm. Free, it, it is this free advice is always accurately priced, mm. it's yeah. worthless. Yeah, so um, well, let me put it this way, and without revealing too much, my next guest is one of the founders of AHL. I can't reveal who it is, but uh, well, you know, let, let me think that could be really, really hard. <laughs> so uh, there we are. Now, another question that I have for you, and that is, of course, that through all of your career, um, you've been through hundreds, if not more, of due diligence, questionnaires, meetings, phone calls, whatever they are. But I want to ask you, what is the thing that these investors or potential investors whom you're talking to, what's the one question that they forget to ask you, they don't know to ask you? That is a really good question. I, I tell you one of the things we do, which we've had quite a lot of success with for sure. those to whom we've proposed it, is that if uh, an investment group, if, if all things being equal, sure. um, uh, and it's a realistic probability, and they do in fact have assets to allocate or whatever um we will run a in effect a dummy account for them mm -hmm. and that removes their fear i think to some extent of algorithmic trading which they all think is going to be some sort of hell meltdown right um or some enormous leverage or this so over a period of weeks or months even they can actually see the trades right um and and so a question that they they might ask is you know could i try it first <laughs> sure and the answer, and that's why we we do these 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 dummy accounts. We don't mm. do it for everybody. We don't do it ad finitum. But you know, we will do it for a period of time, so you can see what it is you're going to be investing in. And that, and and by doing that, it builds their confidence. Mm. They can see on their desk in their trading room, or whatever, exactly what we're doing on a daily basis. How long? How long would you run an account like that? Uh, the longest we've done is about six months or so. How was the reaction by the investors when they realized they would have made a lot of money had they not been a test account? <laughs> uh, well, in that particular case, that 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 did that did that did happen. Okay. But um, um, it doesn't always happen. Sure. Because what when I'm not necessarily saying, "Ah, you see, you, you're, you're <laughs> fools. You should have written a check, and now you didn't, and now you're poorer than you would have been otherwise." That's not the idea. Sure. The idea is just to show them of how course. it worked. What 
what are they going to be seeing? Sure. What likely risk are they going to be? You know, our margin uh, utilization, for example, is around about 2%. Right. So yeah. you know, compare that to a, a CTA a, a futures, sure. uh, whatever. I mean, it, it, it's tiny, tiny sure. a, a small beer stuff. Yeah. No, I fully understand why you're doing it. Actually, I think it's a great idea. I've never thought about it that way. Um, and um, But, you know, and, but the reason I asked you the last question is, of course, these people are also human beings and therefore we know that their emotions you know and the greed and the fear and all of these things will play in so i just wonder what the reaction will be from people who you know obviously either they would have said oh after six months i saved five percent because you lost five percent or they said oh damn i missed the 15 percent move in in this you know so i was just curious about it whether you had seen some funny reactions over the years but uh now The last section, Chris, is really something I just call general and fun. It's uh, a little bit of everything um, where I just uh, uh, dive into your experience uh, and uh, and also trying to maybe get a different side, uh, you know, that, that maybe you don't show um, in, in your normal DDQ, so to speak. But I wanted to ask you, the entrepreneurial gene, I mean, you've been sort of... Uh, doing this for a while um but has it always been there i mean was that a big part of of your quest if i can put it like that to say one day i'm going to run my own shop or was it more coincidental that you ended up in this situation um i wouldn't describe it as coincidental more accidental in my particular case <laughs> okay. um i'm very fortunate because i happen to have um been associated with people who are incredibly talented at every aspect of the build of business, mm. even at a very, very young age, mm. um, AHL. Right. They, these are t t truly gifted individuals in right. their way. And, and that's been proven by longevity and results. Absolutely. Um, it's indisputable. You, you, and other people who've passed through AHL as an alumni, um, it, in my view, it is sort of dwarfs whatever achievements mm. may have been made by the for example the uh, the, the the turtles i mean the hl sure. was an extraordinary an extraordinary phenomena yeah um i was very fortunate uh, or some would say unfortunate to be with bob tomiso because mm. bob had certain views many of which i took on board um absolutely 100 and some of them have been very helpful and some of them have been less helpful in terms mm. of my regard for people in various parts of the industry. Um, it wasn't really my intention. And, and so as a consequence, I never really thought, gosh, I can do this better. If I was by myself, I could do this too. That's never really what I, what, what, what drove me on or, or made me want to, um, to, 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 to start up. I mean, I, I, I do this because I love it. Um, I, d I can't think of what else I would do. Um, if I didn't do this, it would worry me. Mm. Um, I, in fact, I used to have, um, <laughs> this sounds silly, but mm. back in the, uh, um, uh, around about the time of the Asian crisis, we were, we were very successful and, and lots of money and all this sort of stuff. And I, it, it used to disturb me and I would have dreams that I had lost all my money Because somebody told me on the golf course that what I should be doing is opening a string of dry cleaners or something like that. <laughs> and I don't know the first thing about dry cleaners, but sure. it struck me as a really good idea. So that's what I did. And I lost all my money. And that's, <laughs> that's the way to avoid that mm. is to continue doing what I do know something about, which is this. And mm. that's why I'm, I'm still here. I guess, as Tomiso would say, it's um, how we define ourselves. Exactly. Absolutely. Is there any book that you've come across through all these years that have made a particular impression on you and that you would recommend either people who want to become a manager or people who want to become an entrepreneur people who want to invest in these strategies something where you say yeah this this is something that they should spend some time and, and read is there anything that springs to mind The, the obvious one, I suppose, would be the, um, the Market Wizards one, right. Jack Schwager. Yeah. Uh, that's for traders. Right. If you're a, be a, you're a trader, a trader is slightly different to a, uh, an investment management mm -hmm. sophisticated company that we have now. I suppose um, the Covell books, Trend Following and, and that sort of book are always interesting. A lot of them are sort of a war stories type books and sure. glorification and 
glamorization of, 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 of people, but they're interesting stories. And why do you think, just if I may interrupt here, why do you think these stories are so important? What is it that they do for someone like yourself and what you think it would do for others for them to read them? Um, well, I think that you can you can draw certain uh, conclusions, uh, parallels and conclusions between yourself and somebody else. Mm. Uh, and what they say about themselves is always very interesting. Uh, some people try and convince you they're a big hitter. Some people try and convince you, as we said, that they know tomorrow's prices. Some people, you know, all, all that they're highly PhD driven and the world's most brilliant person mm. and all this sort of stuff. Well, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, but you can sort of compare and contrast with what some of these trader stories actually say about them as individuals, which mm. is interesting because there are stresses and strains in this in this sort of business, uh, which you've alluded to with your questioning earlier, um, that do in fact, uh, or can in fact take their toll. Mm. And the question is, h how do you handle that? Can you handle that? Mm. Some people can't, can't um, uh, handle success. Mm. In fact, years and years ago, there was a there was a cartoon in the New Yorker that Bob and I used to have framed in our offices in New York, and it was um, of two hobos, two tramps, mm. surrounded by gin bottles and whiskey bottles and open you know pizza boxes, sitting in a back alley somewhere, right, unshaven and unkempt. Sure. And uh, the caption read one saying to the other, "You know, the irony is, I really could have handled success." <laughs> and um, yeah, some people can't handle success. Mm. And yeah. that's where your ego thing steps in and becomes an impediment to uh, or changes your personality. People build an international headquarters. They get a second wife. They do all sorts of stuff. Mm. And that changes people. Yeah. Uh, and generally speaking, not for the better. Sure. And you see it in corporations as well. You know, you could say that there's a, a very big company with, with three letters beginning with M that has changed itself. Sure. And for the better, I don't know. Time will tell. Time will tell, indeed. Um, speaking about failures, you mentioned earlier what you perceived as being your biggest failure. You and I think, it's, uh, if my memory serves me right, you were sort of referring to marketing or lack of it, maybe. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. And is is I mean, what has it taught you in in a sense, or what what are you? How are you going to deal with that? Um, I don't think I'm ever going to deal with it successfully, and I've come to that sad conclusion. Right. Um, as I mentioned, you, in this business, you're only as good as the representation you make, and I'm perfectly happy to make representations, which is virtually none. All we're going to do is do what the system says. Sure. Now, I'm not comfortable about other people making representations about me and or about what we do here. Right. And you know, I, I just can't. Um, I can't let go of that. So I, I wish I could. But so it's um, a control thing, in a sense. Well, my, my, our chairman is a man called David Anderson. He used to be the chairman of Man uh, when I first met him at AHL mm. years and years and years ago. Mm. And um, he recently just absolutely stunned me, completely floored me, <laughs> when he said, "You're a control freak." <laughs> You know, I'd never considered that, but I guess I am. Right. And uh, in terms of the research and the trading, this, that, and the other, I have no issue with the people we have. Sure. But for some reason, handing over the representation part of my business mm. is not something I'm at all comfortable with. Sure. And I don't think I ever will be. Sure. And it's cost us tens of millions. <laughs> There we are. Sure. Isn't that sad? Well, it nope. We're all different, isn't you know? That's the that's the that's what makes you unique, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> for better or for worse. For better or for worse. Generally speaking, uh, Chris, what's the most difficult nowadays that you have to deal with as a as a hedge fund manager or CTA? Do you think? Um, well, the obvious and, and probably accurate answer is, is regulation, right? Of which I am not a a committed fan. I would have to say, sure. uh, my observation would be that. This business has never been more regulated, more expensively regulated, or more incompetently regulated than it is now. Mm. Um, and I see it getting worse, not better. Right. Um, when I entered into this business in the early 80s, we had sort of, we were talking about financial disasters. We had continental Illinois, perhaps. Then we had the, the, the savings and loans. And then right. this country, we had 
or in the UK, we had Barlow Clowes, and then we, Bearings, God forbid, Bearings was 800 million. Yeah. Um, that's a rounding error these days. Mm. Now, yes. <laughs> each and every turn and twist. It's a fine almost. <laughs> it is. It's half a fine. Be, it's half be, a fine, yeah. You'd be clicking your heels if you were sure. JP Morgan, got 800 yeah. million fine. Um, but these days, and at every turn and twist, there's more and more regulation. Yeah. And it's just got worse and worse and worse. Mm. This, the side, there's a direct correlation, talking about correlations, right. between yeah. the amount of regulation and the size of financial crises. Right. And it's there for all to see. Sure. Which means the next few years will be interesting to follow, no, no doubt. Now, yes. a couple of questions left, and then I will let you go. Can you tell me a fun fact? I know you told me a story earlier today, which actually was a bit fun, but it was before we pressed the record button, but I don't know whether that's the one you want to share. But anyway, can you tell me a fun fact about yourself that even people who know you well may not know about you? I know if it's a fun fact, but um, um, most people uh, assume that I'm uh, brimful of confidence, mm. but um, that, that is in fact not the case i'm probably reasonably adept at, at covering it up but i i do get um in terms of giving speeches or this sure. sort of thing for example sure. I, I, i'm very nervous sure which um i don't think is the the uh, the view that most people have of me no no absolutely not but i think that's that's the human that's the human human part of all of us isn't it that uh you know i think that it's been said and maybe it's part based on research that that's probably apart from you know dying our biggest fear is to go on stage and give a speech i love doing it i'm always invited to do it yeah. and for whatever reason i guess it's because they never know what i'm going to say i might say <laughs> i don't have a, a corporate line to follow maybe they're more worried than you are then well i hope so <laughs> <laughs> anyway great stuff my last question we i you know we talked earlier about today um that investors might not be asking you the right questions and they fail to ask you certain questions. So I have to be tough on myself as well. And that is, was there anything that I missed today? Something I should have asked that I didn't ask? And just to make sure that I've done justice to you and, and, and to Inge? Well, I, I, I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm uh, astounded, impressed and uh, to some extent appalled at the <laughs> at the, the depth of the questions <laughs> and the knowledge behind them so um i if there are i wouldn't tell you because i could I, I wouldn't wish it on your next guest especially if they're <laughs> from ahl um <laughs> okay. uh, no i wouldn't make it um, any harder on them great stuff excellent well before we finish do you mind telling uh, our listeners where they can best reach out to to you uh, and to learn more about uh, inch capital management Sure. Uh, we, we, our website is www.inchinvest.com. Our uh, inch is spelled with I-N-S-C-H. So that's inchinvest.com. Um, and we're based here in Lugano. All details and indeed almost all of the materials that we, we, we have that would be of initial interest to a uh, potential investor are available for download on the website. And we are delighted to show um, investors Uh, through uh, a web presentation, precisely how the system works, um, which I think is is fairly unusual and, and unique. Um, most people try and put some sort of mystique to it, but for us, we'll show you precisely how it works. Uh, and that I think that is um, something we're we're very proud of. So we're, we're we're happy to do it. That's great. Yeah, I did notice that that your website was pretty uh, detailed, and of course, I will be also making links uh, on the show notes page for for these episodes uh, with all your contact information so that investors themselves can uh, reach out to you and and uh, and hopefully learn a lot more so all i have to say on a on a day when i know you i know you're a keen golfer chris so <laughs> on on a day and and this will reveal that we're doing this on a sunday afternoon but on a day where the Ryder cup is taking place i have to give you extra credit and say thank you ever so much for taking the time out <laughs> to speak with me uh, it's been a great pleasure i i thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and i appreciate the the transparency and the honesty in in your answers uh, and i look forward to staying in touch and to uh, hopefully connect again and, and hear uh, uh, how things are, are working out uh, down in Lugano 
Well, thank you so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it, far more than I thought I was going to. Uh, to such an extent, I don't even miss uh, the Ryder Cup. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> You're welcome. Take care, Chris. Cheerio. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.